news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about life and nightlife in the city and what it's doing to your body. Now the world is a very, very busy and bustling place. But if you're like me, sometimes you like staying up late at night. What does that mean though for our health? And what if you can't get to sleep? Could light pollution be playing a role? Plus, when is a city at its most risky? All this and more in this week's episode. Now, if you have trouble sleeping at night, it might be for a number of reasons. Of course, it could be stress, anxiety, depression related. It could be physiological due to things such as a cold or flu or sinus infection that you have that can lead to feeling some symptoms of insomnia. The challenge is also when you take medications like cold or flu or allergy medication that can also have side effects which include insomnia. There are a lot of different things that can go into leading to people to suffer from insomnia which is the lack or difficulty of sleeping. Some cases and rare cases it's actually caused by certain neurological conditions. It's a very complicated medical condition and one that requires a lot of analysis and study. And that's what a lot of people do. They try and break insomnia up into different areas that you can focus on. Because it's such a broad symptom, it's like saying, why do people have runny noses and how do we find a cure to runny noses? Well, that could be due to a number of different factors. We still try to undertake that research. And that's what a group of researchers in South Korea have been studying very hard to try and identify if there is a link between light pollution and insomnia. And they've done so using an incredibly long-running study and a very wide population basis. Often when we talk about studies, we like to say, ah, well, what's the sample size? How many people, or N, were in this trial? And in this case, well, that number is very, very large indeed. It's 52,027 participants. And how do they get such a large number? Well, it's a population cohort-based study. And we'll talk a little bit about what went on in detail in this study and what it showed. And is there any links between insomnia and light pollution? Two researchers from Seoul National University's College of Medicine in South Korea, Gyeongbok Min and Jin Yong Min, have been studying over a long period of time the impact of light pollution and how it may relate to insomnia. And this information was recently published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. And they used as the basis of their research a very large running program run by the National Health Insurance Service, the NHIS, in South Korea. Now, between the years 2002 and 2013, the NHIS was running a national sample cohort. It's a population-based cohort study. and involved over 1 million participants, individuals which is roughly about 2% of the total eligible population of South Korea at the time. Now, this study focused in particular on a certain subset of those people. That subset includes basically people over the age of 60 years old. And out of that entire large cohort of 1 million plus, they narrowed it down to 52,027. Adults aged over the age of 60 who had, over the period of study, actually filled in and responded to medical surveys that are included as part of this long-running cohort study. These kinds of long-running programs are essential for getting good baselines on population health statistics. They don't tell you a lot about the specific individual cases or targeted treatments, but they do tell you about about large macro or environmental or widespread conditions. 
And that's exactly what the researchers were looking for in this particular case. And what the researchers were of particular interest was to see if there was some correlation between people who suffered from insomnia and, well, the exposure to strong levels of outdoor artificial nighttime light. And so when we talk about light pollution, let's see if we can define it a little bit first. Ever since we've invented artificial light, whether that be from fire all the way to the incandescent bulb or LED lights, we've used them to illuminate our lives in the nighttime. And that's a great advancement for humankind. But light pollution can cause a whole bunch of problems, not least for humans, but also for those in the environment around them. Now, for example, animals that are exposed to artificial light during sleep were more likely to fall asleep later, wake up earlier and sleep less than animals that are kept in the dark at night. And that's to do with the circadian rhythm, this series of motions in our body, which is tied to some sort of cycle. It's what helps us get up in the morning, know when to get hungry, to eat, to sleep. These rhythms can be disrupted by traveling, like jet lag, or by light as one of the many triggers that can mess with your circadian rhythm. In, For example, in humans, if you shine lights and have a bare nighttime light exposure in people's bedrooms, that can lead to increased insomnia, delayed sleep onset, and just in general, poor sleep quality in terms of depth of ar- and frequency of arousal. Now, there was a large-run study conducted by Telephone of the United States population that looked into maybe whether or not artificial lights in the outdoors could also play a role. But the problem is, to try and get enough information to really make sense of that, you have to look at a wide group of people, which is why that large cohort of patients in the Korean national health system is the perfect sample point for such a study. Because that trial period for this cohort was 12 years basically defined to give a four-year baseline period between 2002 and 2005 and an assessment period of 2006 to 2013. Which means if you want to do any population cohort-based study, it's a good one to actually have a look at. Now, the researchers used satellite imagery and cloud data from the National Centers of Environmental Information in South Korea. And with that, they could actually get, over the period of 2002 to 2013, detailed breakdowns across the 232 administered districts in South Korea and get an estimated light pollution level in the outdoors for the entire region. And what they could do is then they could match that to the participants in different regions. And whilst the survey didn't actually specifically ask for insomnia in a number of cases, one of the things that they could look at was their prescription levels for hypnotic drugs, which are prescribed for generally people with insomnia. This kind of is a treatment medication used, especially in South Korea, for people who are suffering from insomnia. So looking at the strength and the severity of those prescriptions gives you a really good idea about who has insomnia and to what degree. So that's the information that they correlated with the artificial nighttime light exposure levels from the satellite imagery. And that is pretty interesting. When you point these two things together, what you find is that the people who are most likely to actually have high levels of prescription or for hypnotic drugs, specifically people over the age of 60, which is the cohort they were looking at, they tended to be women who live in metropolitan areas or have a high household income above 75% of quartile. Older adults who took more hypnotic drugs more likely to be overweight or obese, to be non-smokers or, or drinking alcohol. What's very interesting is when you look at the different statistical correlations between this, One of the most significant ones that has the most contribution is those who live in levels with high light pollution or high nighttime light levels. And that's very interesting 
when you compare it to all things being considered equal, people in other regions with not as high light pollutions in rural areas who don't have the same level of prescription of hypnotic drugs. Now, this isn't exactly a clear indicator of a tie between insomnia. And also, whilst we talked about light being able to mess with circadian rhythms, which is very, very true, it's not clear how light in the ambient environment and not in the bedroom actually messes with your circadian rhythms. So there's further work to be done. But it's a good way to show that there can be a very strong correlation between general high amounts of light pollution, which you find living in a bustling city like Seoul, Busan. And if you consider that and tie it back to then the levels of insomnia, there certainly is, based on this population study, something that needs more thorough investigation. The link between general light pollution and what it can do to your sleeping patterns has not been clearly established on an individual basis. But on a population cohort, you can say it is more statistically likely that if you're living in a bustling city and you have the over the age of 65, you're more likely to then potentially be on drugs to treat insomnia. It's a very interesting study that ties together the levels of light pollution which we associate with the hum and bustle of city life, with what it can be doing to our sleep as we get older. When we talk about circadian rhythm, it's actually a term used to define your own internal circadian rhythm topology or behaviour. Scientists call it your chronotype, which is a nice neat way of saying what your body does at any sort of period in time. And that does change. A lot of things are happening in your body triggered at different times. And our circadian rhythm is trying to govern all of that and make sure our body does the right things at the right time, sleeps when it needs to sleep gets hungry when we're expecting it to get hungry, has energy available, or does processing jobs like cleaning out your organs or your livers or so on at the right times. Now, an area that is being looked at at the moment by a group of researchers from a variety of institutions, including Northumbria University in the UK, as well as researchers from University of Surrey, Nestlé Research in Switzerland, National University of Singapore, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and École Polytechnique Fédérale de Luzerne in Switzerland, and even Plymouth Margeron University in the UK. And all these people are trying to get an idea of what the connection is between your individual circadian rhythm, your chronotype, and, well, your general cardiometabolic health. Because your body does a lot of things when you sleep, like process the food of the day and prepares energy and your organs ready for the next day. And if you start messing around with that, does that have any impact? For example, if you change the timing and the frequency of how often you eat and when you eat, does that start to modify your circadian rhythm and vice versa? Are there any negative impacts of doing so? And Dr. Alamoazi from Northumbria University and Dr. Leonidas Kargonanis from Nestle Health Sciences in Switzerland, have been trying to get an understanding of is there some kind of overarching impact for being a night owl? And have pulled together a very large meta-study on all of the research into this chrononutrition type concept to see where there are gaps in the research and what we can sort of target our studies into trying to find a link for the health negatives or positives of being a night owl. These were published in the journal Advances in Nutrition, end of November. 
And whilst there are, in this growing rapidly field, not a lot of studies, there are many large studies slowly starting to build up evidence. It's large studies between 600 to 1,000 plus participants, so we're not talking small studies here with 30 people samples. And as this is a meta-study, the scientists are trying to get an understanding of the overall trend across a number of different studies rather than just looking for a small case study. And from that, they're reasonably confident in saying there's a growing body of evidence indicating that there's increased risks of ill health in people with evening preference because it can tend to lead to having a more erratic eating pattern and patterns of consuming more unhealthy foods. Whether or not that's due to the sleeping behaviour being odd or the cause of the sleeping behaviour being odd is something further to be discussed. But what they've found is that there's increasing evidence emerging from people from these studies that people who have a natural preference for the evenings, people with what they call an evening chronotype, night owls, can have a higher risk of developing conditions such as heart disease and type 2 diabetes when conducted as a, as a population study. People who tend to go to bed later can tend to have unhealthier diets, consume more alcohol, sugars, caffeinated drinks, and fast food than early risers, which means they are consistently reporting more erratic eating patterns of behavior. They might miss breakfast and eat later in the day. Their diet tends to contain less grains and rye and vegetables. They eat fewer but larger meals, myself included as one of those. I tend not to have very much for breakfast, but I eat a large dinner. Now, those factors, as well as the fact that people who are night hours and awake late at night may be having more caffeinated beverages, sugar and snacks rather than fruit and vegetables that you would have during the day, which could also explain the increased risk of suffering from other diseases. But it's not just a pure dietary study we're talking about here. Studies have shown, which is what they've been trying to investigate in this meta-study, that eating late in the day can be linked to an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And that's because your body is doing key functions. Um, glucose is processed by your body. It's metabolized during it. And your circadian rhythm is in charge of making sure that happens at the best time. Now, glucose levels should naturally decline throughout the day and reach their lowest point at night. But if you're a night owl and you're eating lots of sugar before bed, your glucose levels get a big kick up right before you go to sleep. And this may negatively impact their metabolism, particularly if they're already predisposed to having issues processing glucose in the first place. This also might be the fact of a result of people who are having night owl type behavior going the other way. For example, if you work a shift work or you're often having really disrupted sleep due to that, then your body clock can get flipped on its head. Now, if you're working shift log, researchers have found that this actually can re reduce your sensitivity to insulin and make you a greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes. In fact, two times more likely to develop that than those who have a morning preference. But this might be due to the fact that your diet is thrown out by being a shift worker and plus of the number of other difficult effects that go along with it. But it's not all bad news, right? So people's preference for going to bed early or going to bed late changes over their life cycle. For example, almost 90% plus of two-year-olds have a morning preference. But this declines to about 60% by the time they're six and shifts later and later and later further. But evening preference will continue to the early 50s, but large long-term studies have shown that people tend to revert back to a morning preference once they get over 50. But it's also not just a simple place of biological preferences. Society plays a big role in it. 
example, Germans are more likely to have an evening preference, so are the Spanish. But the Spanish have naps during the day. But it also can tie into urban and rural areas as well. So society and culture can play a huge part on your circadian rhythm too, which is important to note. So the challenge here is that we've identified that your own individual circadian rhythm can influence how your body processes things like glucose, as well as your general cardiometabolic health. And it can expose you to greater risks of cardiac disease, as well as diabetes. But we don't really have detailed understandings of exactly how those mechanisms work and what the best mechanism is for an individual. And that's what we need to try and find out through further research. And this meta-study has highlighted many gaps in the research. For example, studies into the impacts that children to adults have, or the, the change in behaviour in adolescence, which sees people become more and more later sleeping, and what that actual impact that has on their overall long-term health. And how that ties into cultural and societal changes like school schedules, social schedules, homework, working hard at the office and late there as well. In general, we need to have more deeper understanding of how people's body clocks can tie into their overall health and their risk factors, which sadly we're just lacking for at the moment. This is a relatively new field, and the only way we're going to get a better idea is by doing more detailed and longer term studies. And that's what Professor Susanna Alamoasi from Northumbria University hopes that we will achieve. When it comes to looking at the health of a city and how it changes over time, one of the most interesting questions is when is a city at the most risky? When is it most dangerous to be in a city? When are people more likely to undertake risky behaviour in an entire city? Not in the individual decision-making processes, but on a large macro population level. And researchers from McGill University in the United States and University of Pennsylvania have been trying to get to the heart of this very question. This research was involved Johann Eckstadt and Ross Otto from McGill University. What they were trying to dig into is to try to quantify something just in general, the mood of a city and how this changes over time, and if there's any link between that and just general risky behaviour or health of the city. And they took the sentiment of a city by looking at Twitter posts over a one-year period, about 5 million Twitter posts from major cities in the United States, geotagged to those specific cities. So New York, Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Fort Worth, and the San Francisco Bay Area, plus, of course, the city that never sleeps, Los Angeles. Now, from that large sample set, they could build an association for whether or not the city is happy or angry or, st or sad or what the general mood or response was in the city. And basically, because if you look at people's Twitter posts, they're like canaries in the coal mine, as Johannes Eichstadt states. What they say on Twitter is representative of the mood shared on the street and in the local communities. So they used artificial intelligence to trawl through that data, try to categorize it and the language expressed in it, to see how the mood of the city changed in a day-to-day -day basis. Then, based on that, they looked to see what was happening at that particular time. They looked at unexpected positive outcomes, such as you know maybe a sudden sporting team win or a sudden sunny day after a long period of rain. And they tried to predict if the city would be in a good mood the very next day. So they sort of built an establishment in their model about how people's 
tweets could be associated with the mood of the city and then trained it to know when to expect good moods and bad moods as well. And what they found is pretty interesting. For example, how lucky is Chicago feeling on any given day? Well, based on their model, you need to know a couple of things. The average Chicagoan will be feeling luckier if the White Sox won last night or the sun has been shining after a few days of grey skies. And this is based on then other proven long-term psychological studies that have shown that people who feel better tend to take more risks, especially when something went better than they expected. And basically, these researchers tried to apply the same principle on a city-wide scale. So they looked at then the increased purchases of and a great example of whether people are not feeling lucky and are willing to take a risk, the purchase of lottery tickets. So they looked at the daily purchase of lottery tickets in Chicago and New York, and whether or not when people were more likely to spike and buy a lottery ticket to see if it had any correlation to the overall city mood that they previously established. So for example, on a good mood day in Chicago and New York, they used in about a 2.5% increase per person in gambling activity across the city which is pretty interesting to think about. Which makes sense. If the city in general, the vibe of the city is feeling good, they're more likely to spend a few bucks on a wish or a prayer or a gamble, which makes sense. But it also goes to show the power of using social media as a way to get a large-scale read on the general mood of a situation. It's not ideal for detailed psychological studies to really prove a correlation, but it is a good way of extrapolating out known correlations and seeing if there's any large population impact without having to undertake a very detailed and rigorous long-term study. We can get that data effectively a different way and that's by using publicly available social media information. Some great work done out of McGill University and the University of Pennsylvania. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Found out about how your health can be influenced by your own chronotype, if you're a night owl or not, whether or not there's a lot of light pollution around you and what that might tie to insomnia, people's moods of an entire city using social media. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.